Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, August 26th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, state officials monitor Hurricane Laura as it continues to intensify ahead of landfall. And after a period of decline, the rolling average of COVID-19 cases ticks up. Plus, we examine how the coronavirus pandemic is affecting Mississippi's HBCUs. Then, after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, the FDA issues emergency use of a new form of treatment for COVID-19. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hurricane Laura is intensifying quickly, building from a Category 1 to a Category 3 storm in the last 12 hours, with maximum sustained winds now at 115 miles per hour. But the worst could be yet to come, as forecasters predict the storm could strengthen to a Category 4 before landfall late tonight or early tomorrow. While the predictive cone shows the center of the storm landing in southwest Louisiana, Mississippi officials are monitoring Laura as it is still poised to bring wind, rain and storm surge to Mississippi. Governor Tate Reeves says the state is preparing for the worst. Things can change. And so we want to continue to monitor that very, very closely. Um, but we are going to continue to Pray for the best, prepare for the worst, and expect somewhere in between. Uh, but even if we do not take a direct hit from Laura, from this hurricane, uh, we do know that we have several uh, risk measures that we need to be aware of. Uh, certainly, tornadoes are a risk, particularly in West Mississippi. We also will see high winds, and Laura is currently projected to come ashore somewhere around the Louisiana-Texas border, but it's also scheduled to take a fairly sharp right turn once coming ashore and moving to the east very quickly. And so we could see significant amounts of rainfall in the northernmost area of our state, particularly in that northwest quadrant. The eastern side of tropical cyclones with inland-facing winds and rotation often packs the worst elements of the storm. Mississippi Emergency Management Agency Director Greg Michelle says residents across the state should be aware. 
There will be second and third order effects with regard to rainfall, uh, with wind gusts and potential spin-up tornadoes pretty much across the entire state. But the bands of rain, uh, where it was uh, previously mentioned, uh, primarily your, uh, your concentrations of rain in southwest Mississippi. And then as this storm uh, makes its turn off to the east, uh, coming out of Arkansas, you will see uh, potential for a lot of rainfall up in north parts of Mississippi. So just be aware of that. Uh, storm surge watch, uh, generally speaking, one to three foot uh, for uh, in generally around Harrison County, and then uh, need to be watching for more of a surge in Hancock County and upwards of five feet. We just have to watch that uh, pretty much. Laura's threat to the U.S. Gulf Coast comes 15 years after Hurricane Katrina came ashore in Hancock County. Michelle says the state's emergency response has come a long way since the 2005 storm. And the governor has mentioned this a number of times um, about a state-managed, locally executed, and federally supported operation. We, we believe that here, and that is law here in Mississippi. That's the way that we do it. Uh, it works very well. So the the uh, capacity that we've got at the county level with our emergency managers has changed dramatically, uh, the capabilities. And uh, I will tell you right now that the counties today are very well prepared uh, to at least initially sustain themselves uh, in nearly every aspect of emergency response. Um, and then the, the state piece as well, equally capabilities there in the way that we coordinate resources and assets. Uh, but the next big thing is going to be the mitigation efforts that the, that the state has gone through. If the same storm were to hit Mississippi today that hit in 2005, the effects would be different. Uh, it would be less because of the mitigation that's been done. So Mississippi's come a long way. Um, we may have to experience that again. Uh, I hope not. But if we do, I believe that we'll be in a much better position to respond should that happen. In addition to the looming threat of Hurricane Laura, the state is continuing its fight against COVID-19. Recent reports of daily cases have not followed the downward trend of last week. Governor Reeves says Mississippians need to keep doing the little things. We've seen a leveling off of our previous decline. That could be a sign of a rebound of total number of cases, and we are tracking that very, very closely. We do not want to go back to the high numbers that we were seeing just two and three, four weeks ago. We need everyone to continue to try. We need everyone to continue to make an effort. It is as important today as it has ever been. You can keep our kids in school. You can keep sports being played on the field. We can keep businesses open, and we can save lives if we will just do the little things right now. This fight is not over. No trend is inevitable. It it rests completely on our joint efforts. Reeves has issued a statewide mask mandate that is in effect until the end of the month. He says residents should keep doing the little things to maintain the fight against widespread transmission. The best way in which for us to slow down the spread of the virus uh, is to wear a mask, is to stay socially distanced, um, is to avoid social gatherings where possible. Um, and, 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 you know, if you do those simple things, uh, we, can, we can go a long way towards uh, reducing um, the, the amount of spread of the virus. 
While Reeves is encouraging these methods at home in Mississippi, he was pictured attending a large campaign event in North Carolina as part of the Republican National Convention festivities. In the pictures posted on social media, Reeves is seen without a mask in close proximity to others without masks at an event with little evidence of social distancing. Reeves says political activity is protected by the First Amendment. And the reality is that um, I was definitely at an event with uh, a good friend of mine, Dan Forrest, who's the lieutenant governor of North Carolina, the Republican nominee for governor. Uh, it was a campaign event. Uh, we believe that political speech is protected. Uh, it is not at all unlike the protests that went on in uh, downtown Jackson and other places. And so um, while I was in North Carolina, I wore a mask about 90 percent of the time, 95 percent of the time, uh, much like I do uh, now. Along with a leveling of cases, COVID-related deaths are revealing the severity of community transmission in Mississippi. State Health Officer Thomas Dobbs says the current trend of deaths can be expected for a number of weeks. Deaths do lag cases, and we still have a lot of cases. So um, we're going to continue to see deaths. So please, you know, don't lose, don't let your guard down. Um, we all have a really strong role to play. Um, as as we follow the trends, important to watch the the. Um, the uh, the date of death, right, that's going to be on our website, kind of like the same thing with the date of onset of illness because it's going to be a better indicator. Um, a lot of those, um, they take a long time to evaluate because whenever we do a, a death certificate evaluation, we do pull the chart, we ver- verify that they actually tested positive because um, we do exclude a lot of those. We don't want to, you know, include things that are not really COVID-related. Um, but, yeah, we'll just have to follow the trends and see where it goes because we're going to see a lot more deaths because we have a lot of cases, and, and it's going to trail. So we have... You know, 800 new cases today. We know our mortality rate is going to be over 2%. So um, out of that, you know, you got to imagine there's going to be 16, you know, 20 deaths that are going to be reported. So in the, in the next few weeks, probably related to those numbers. Coming up, we examine how the coronavirus pandemic is affecting Mississippi's HBCUs. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. No matter if you use an app to start your car or still have a flip phone, Everyday Tech can decipher today's technology for tomorrow's solutions. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or the MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Institutions of higher learning in Mississippi are facing multiple challenges restarting classes amid the coronavirus pandemic. But as MPB's Ashley Norwood reports, leaders at historically black colleges and universities say the impact at their schools is greater. The coronavirus pandemic is taking a toll on black communities at a disproportionate rate. Black men and women represent more than 50 percent of cases and deaths in Mississippi. And that's partially why many of the state's historically black colleges and universities are taking a wait and see approach before returning campus life to business as usual. Mississippi Valley State University in Itabina is starting off completely virtual. But along with that comes one dilemma. Our students need to have laptops in their homes and access to Internet in their homes. That's Shade Turnipseed, an associate professor of history at Valley State. She says many students aren't able to attend class online for reasons beyond their control. 
So sometimes that means going to a library. Sometimes it means pulling up into a coffee shop that has internet or somebody else's parking lot. You know, it's, it's crazy that our students have to go through what they have to go through. Turnip Seed says the digital divide in the state and its impact, especially in black communities across the Delta, leaves them no choice but to phase in in-person learning next month despite concerns over the coronavirus. Historically black institutions like Valley State, Alcorn State, and Jackson State Universities did receive some emergency relief funds. Collectively, the three received $38 million in Federal CARES Act money. The money was allocated to cover costs associated with significant changes to the delivery of instruction due to the coronavirus. Additionally, the Mississippi legislature allocated $6 million. Private HBCUs like Tougaloo College rely more heavily on tuition for institutional funds. But in this time of economic hardship and health fears over the virus, their enrollment is taking a major hit. Carmen Walters is president of Tougaloo College. We have had to struggle for many, many years with lack of funding, lack of support, lack of resources. I think with HBCUs, because we already had challenges fiscally, we are affected even more. My enrollment uh, for fall is down uh, about 11%. As a tuition-driven institution, that 11% is a big hit. Tougaloo is also starting off the semester completely online, and to limit foot traffic on campus even more, they're postponing residential move-ins until the spring semester. For historically black schools, enrollment drops and lost revenue could be devastating. The Southwestern Athletic Conference, which includes Mississippi's three public HBCUs, announced the postponement of all scheduled fall sports because of the pandemic. Acting president at Jackson State, Thomas Hudson, says that's going to cost the school millions of dollars in lost revenue. Just in that first month, when you look at the guarantee games, that's your Southern Heritage Classic. We had a game against USM, which was a guarantee game in South Alabama. Just those three games alone, you're looking at about a million dollars in revenue loss. And then when you look at our home games, we typically make between five dollars to $600,000 per home game. So the loss is in the millions. But Hudson says he's hopeful. The conference has already started planning a schedule for fall sports during the 2021 spring semester. Leaders at Mississippi's historically black colleges and universities admit they are suffering during the coronavirus pandemic, but surviving nonetheless. Ashley Norwood, MPB News. Coming up after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, the FDA issues emergency use of a new form of treatment for COVID-19. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. The first question that we get when someone comes in is, how is the Ulysses S. Grant Presidential Library in Mississippi? Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. We have every letter Grant ever wrote and every letter ever written to him. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app, Mile Marker, a Mississippi Roads podcast. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and this is a Southern Remedy Health Minute. I injured my back a couple of times to the point that I had trouble walking and, you know, it it hurt pretty severely. But the last year or so, I've got a minor pain, and if I can put my hand on it, it's almost around my 
side at the base of my ribs toward my back. Um, I've been to the doctor a couple of times and he's treated me with anti-inflammatories and it seems to help for a short time. I guess I'm asking, should I go to a specialist? And if so, what kind of specialist should I see? Did you do any physical therapy during that time? I did. Because it has been shown to be very beneficial, particularly if it's milder pain that's just really sticking with you at certain times of the day or night. I think it probably is time to see somebody, whether or not you need surgery. You know, that's that's sort of an individual decision. Most low back surgeries can be uh, treated chronically without surgery. And if you, if you leave it with the minimally invasive surgeries, if you're not having neurologic impairment to the point where uh, it's affecting your walking, uh, you know, with, with muscle tone, those kinds of things, and there's objective ways to look at that, most people don't need surgery for that. But I still think you probably should see an orthopedic surgeon or a spinal surgeon. So uh, sometimes those are a little bit different. A neurosurgeon sometimes is doing the same thing or an orthopedic surgeon. Some people, you know, go to uh, the chiropractic route. I think that works for some people. I've seen some good improvement. Some people, some people it doesn't. Uh, acupuncture is something else that a lot of people have looked at for chronic pain, and it's sort of, you know, 50-50 on that, too. For more health tips and medical information, listen to Southern Remedy each weekday morning at 11 on MPB Think Radio. If you ever miss one of our locally produced shows or want to simply hear it again, you can find what you need at mpbonline.org or download our podcast app to your smartphone. MPB programming is on your schedule at mpbonline.org. Mississippi edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The Food and Drug Administration is granting emergency use authorization for convalescent plasma in the continued fight against COVID-19. Flanked by Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar and FDA Commissioner Stephen Hahn, President Trump described the treatment as safe and effective. The issuance is based on a Mayo Clinic study and further expands access to the treatment, but it's not the same as traditional FDA approval. The move also comes with scrutiny as the cited study lacks some of the scientific methodology often used to determine the efficacy of drugs and other treatments. Dr. Richard Summers is Vice Chancellor of Research at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. He explains the storied use of plasma in treatment and the status of plasma trials in the fight against COVID-19. This has been in use since even back in the days with the Spanish flu virus in 1918. Um, uh, People tried this as a way to treat, um, and it's kind of a, a way to use the body's own mechanisms for fighting these viruses to to do this. How effective is it? Um, it varies from disease to disease. Some of them have very strong antibody responses and have high levels in their bloodstream and others don't. And that's something that we've seen with this virus, um, uh, that not all convalescent plasmas are the same. Um, some of them have a lot of antibodies and some don't. 
And that's one reason here at the medical center we have, before we infuse the serum into somebody, we test that serum to make sure that person has produced a large number of antibodies. How many people at UMMC have been treated with this? Um, a couple dozen. We've collected about 50 um, uh, individuals that collected their, harvested their plasma after they've convalesced from the illness. Um, and the big challenge is that, you know, you have to follow the blood types. And some people have strange blood types, B negative or, or whatever, that there's not many people, even donors, that have that same blood type. So matching that's been difficult. And that's one reason the Mayo uh, program has been successful and that it's looking nationally at kind of a huge national blood bank of plasma for convalescent serums, and so they're able to match those more readily. However, the Mayo Project does not necessarily look at the amount of antibodies in their bloodstream. It's not a clinical trial. It's just a program. Why hasn't, I mean, this has just been approved by the FDA. Why hasn't it been approved before if it seems to be working so successfully? Um, well, it, there had been an emergency use authorization previously for Mayo Clinic had been doing this program, but they were um, conscientiously stopping to look at the data before they continued that. We're doing it under an emergency use authorization with the FDA at the University of Mississippi Medical Center as a special clinical trial where we're looking at um, data to analyze it in a, a research context. How long does plasma last? You know, blood has a certain shelf life. Is it the same for plasma? Yes. Um, it has a little bit longer than blood. Um, but what's more important about this in particular is we know that the antibodies in people's blood wane over time. So if you contracted COVID now and you waited till four or five months to donate, that's probably too late. Your antibodies have probably waned and um, would not be a sufficient number to really be effective. But the plasma that we collect, we freeze and, and will be in that frozen state can last much longer than ordinary blood products. You mentioned a serum. Is it actual an actual plasma transfusion, or are you creating some kind of serum from the plasma that's administered? So it's been done both ways, but the uh, quickest and um, easiest way to do it is just to use whole plasma. Are there side effects from this? Well, just like any blood transfusion, you can't have a reaction if the, if um, you get the wrong um, uh, blood type. And also, there's some kind of sub-blood types that people can have that could react. Though Those are very rare, and we haven't seen any bad reactions in the patients that we've done here at the university. Now that the FDA has approved it, will UMMC be ramping up, getting in touch with those who are potentially um, contributors of their plasma to this? We already have done some of that um, uh, as part of our clinical trial. I think what this uh, emergency use authorization would do is open it up for 
um, use outside of a clinical trial as more general use for treatment. Same way that the emergency use authorization for remdesivir was done to allow people to use it in routine clinical care. However, we will continue to do it under the context of, of a research trial because we want to, one, make sure the patients that we are infusing are being infused with a plasma that we know has antibodies, and two, so that we can gather some more information regarding this. What is the testing process to see if there are enough antibodies to make a difference? Well, the person comes by um, uh, one of our uh, places at the university in our clinical research and translational science unit, and um, what we do is just do a simple blood draw, and then we look at their antibodies in three phases, um, three screening tiered phases, which includes a neutralizing antibody test, because not only do we want to know do they have antibodies, but we want to know are they functionally active. Dr. Richard Summers is an Associate Vice Chancellor for Research at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thank you so much, Dr. Summers. Thank you. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter, and fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.